Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Welcome to Money for the Rest of Us, a personal finance show on money, how it works, how to invest, and how to live without worrying about it. I'm your host, David Stein, and today is episode 90. It's titled, The True Cost and What It Takes to Be Retired. It's 2016. Happy New Year. If you happen to be listening to this in January 2016, the first episode of the year. And one of the most popular episodes on Money for the Rest of Us, or at least one that I get the most feedback on, was episode five, The True Cost of a Thing. And as a refresher, the true cost when we buy something is first the monetary price we pay. Second, the price others might have paid for us to get that price, or especially if it's a very, very cheap price, and that's called a negative externality. That's a price born or a cost born by somebody else for us to have that good. And the third is the time it took to earn the money to buy that particular thing. The quote that I love by Henry David Thoreau is, the cost of a thing is the amount of what I will call life, which is required to be exchanged for it immediately or in the long run. So that third element is the life it takes out of us to buy that thing. I was thinking about this the other day. It was over the holidays, and my son called me up. He was out with his brother and some friends, and he says, is there anything in a car that leaks green? And that's somewhat telling in terms of perhaps my failure as a father to teach my children some basic car mechanics, but I gave him some, some, some instruction of what antifreeze is, and I told him to drive over to the shop, and I'd meet him there, and we'd have it looked at. And so we we went over to where we get our cars fixed. And as I was sitting there, I looked at, I was looking at my phone. And I came across an article in Recode about an iPhone app that I had not heard of. And it was the Wish app. And what the Wish app is, it's, it's essentially, it's a mobile purchasing app. And so it, it has goods that you can buy and... So I read the article, and it talked about this particular app is targeting the Walmart crowd, but younger, which, which suggests that they're, they're looking to target what they call value-conscious buyers, impulse buyers, and, and that's how this app is set up. And as I started looking at what was on the app, I was absolutely stunned by the prices. You can buy a dress shirt on the Wish app. For $6, have it sent to you directly from Bangladesh or some other developing com- country. Shipping is only 
You can buy a men's sport coat, suit jacket for $12, a women's sweater for $7. There was watches on there for $2. There was the, the app was offering all kinds of bonuses for free. And honestly, it kind of disturbed me because, yes, the prices were cheap. But what was the true cost? Who was bearing the cost of delivering a $6 shirt directly to me from the factory? On April 24, 2013, an eight-story building located on the outskirts of Dakla, Bangladesh, collapsed. It killed 1,100 people and left 1,800 children orphaned. The building was known as the Rana Plaza, and it housed clothing factories where workers, mostly women, mostly women 18, 19, and 20 in the early 20s, they sewed clothes for brands such as JCPenney in the U.S. and Joe Fresh in Canada. Several days before the collapse, workers pointed out to their employers visible cracks in the building, and the workers' employers said, go to work anyway, and the building collapsed. At the time, the minimum wage for factory workers in Bangladesh was $37 a month, or approximately $1.25 a day, according to the Los Angeles Times. A standard shift in, the, in these five factories in the Rana Plaza was 13 to 14 and a half hours. Workers got two days off per month. And depending on their skill level, their allergy wage was between, their hourly wage was between 12 and 24 cents per hour. This is according to the Institute of Global Labor and Human Rights. There are 4 million factory workers in Bangladesh. Most of them are women and most of them are sewing clothes to be exported to the developed world. 40% of the people in Bangladesh live on less than $1.25 a day, and they spend 60% of that income on food, according to the International Food Policy Research Institute. Now, this is the state of our global garment industry. Consumers can buy clothes for less than $15 made by women looking, working long hours for pennies, often in unsafe conditions. Now, this, this bothered me. There is a cost being paid by someone overseas working horrendous hours for little pay. That's an externality, especially if the conditions are safe. And, I, and I, as I thought about that, I just, it just disturbed me. So I started, I came across a documentary called The True Cost. And it talked about the, the, clo- the global clothing industry. And the, at least right now, that documentary is on, on Netflix. But on there, they interviewed a gentleman by the name of Benjamin Powell. He's the director of the Free Market Institute at Texas Tech University in Lubbock, Texas. Now, I've spent a lot of time in Lubbock, Texas. Texas Tech University used to be a client of mine. I, I helped oversee or advise on their endowment. And, and they had a quote by him, and, I'm gonna, and I later looked him up, and I found this article in the Huffington Post that he wrote. He's a columnist there. And I'll link to the article in the show notes, or you will have already got that link if you are a member of my Insider's Guide. You can sign up for that at moneyfortherestofus.net. And we have a new way that you can sign up. If you're, if you're out listening 
to this episode out in the car or on your mobile phone, if you will text to the number 44222, so that's the number, 44222, type in the word INSIDER, I-N-S-I-D-E-R, text it to that number, 44222, you'll get a text back where you'll put in your email and you'll automatically, you'll be signed up for my Insider's Guide. You'll, you'll still need to confirm your email address when I send you out an email, but very, very easy. You can do it by your phone. So this Huffington Post article written by Benjamin Powell, here's his quote. It is unfortunate that more than 1,100 Bangladeshi people died in a factory collapse a year ago. It would be even more unfortunate if emotionally charged activism in the wake of that tragedy led to regulations that destroy the jobs that are helping millions of others escape extreme poverty. He argues that garment factory jobs are a step up for these women and that the higher pay and enforcing existing safety standards will cause clothing companies to shift their manufacturing to places where costs are lower or they'll replace these women with manual labor or they'll replace the manual labor with machines. He says the reason these women are paid so little and must endure unsafe working conditions is because they are not sufficiently productive. If these women would just so faster, then they could make more money. And since so much of their compensation goes toward buying food, these women prefer to get most of their worker benefits in the form of pay instead of safety. When that when I read that, I that bugged me. That really did. And I, I read the quote to LaPrille and, and her comment was, has he ever sewn? Has he, has he sat down and tried sewing for 10 hours and realized how much that can hurt your back, hurt your shoulders? But then I reflected on it more and I, and I looked at it and I said, okay, well, how poor is Bangladesh? And surprisingly, Bangladesh is only the 48th poorest country in the world as measured by economic output per person. There are 47 other countries where wages would be even lower. So if clothing manufacturers want to shift their production to where they can get even lower cost, they can do so. And Bangladesh is about to find out because the country recently raised their minimum wage for factory workers from $37 a month to $68 a month. For capitalism to function, does it really require workers in developing countries to work ridiculously long hours and unsafe conditions for meager pay? Is this really a step up? And so if, if that, that's really the only choice that we can give workers in developing countries so that we can buy $6 shirts on the Wish app? My daughter has bought T-shirts from a company called Crochet Kids. It's a not-for-profit. It sells clothes made by women in Peru and Uganda. Crochet Kids not only provides women a consistent income to help lift them and their families out of extreme poverty, but the not-for-profit also provides education and mentoring to put their employees on a sustainable path where they don't need outside aid. The children of these workers that participate in the Crochet Kids program are eight times more likely to attend high school compared to non-participants in the program. And education, if we talk about increasing productivity, 
Education is a key to doing that. So what do shirts on crochet kits cost? There, there are 20, as I looked at it, to their site, 20 to $30. That compares to t-shirts on the Wish app that go for $6 to $12. So for $8 to $15 more, is that not worth paying for the transparency of knowing where your clothes are made, how it benefits the worker, and that the working conditions are safe? There is no predetermined course capitalism has to take. Companies can change and will change their behavior if their customers demand it. There's a quote by the designer Stella McCartney, and it was also was in, I think it was in this True Cost documentary. It's customers has the customer has to know they are in charge. If they don't like it and don't buy it, then we don't have jobs. Ultimately, consumers are in charge and we can decide if we want to pay a higher cost. In other words, take the burden of the true cost of buying something onto ourselves as opposed to trying to always get the cheapest price and some of that cost ends up being on the shoulders of others and perhaps costing them their health and in some in dire case in the case uh, of those show, sewing shirts for J.C. Penney, their lives. There's a quote by Seth Godin that I came across the other day. He, he must have liked it too, because he published this in 2011, and he published it again in 2015. And it was on business ethics. Here's his quote. I worry that we absolve ourselves of responsibility when we talk about business ethics and corporate social responsibility. Corporations are collections of people, and we ought to insist that those people, that would be us, do the right thing. Business is too powerful for us to leave our humanity at the door of the office. It's not business. It's personal. I believe in capitalism, and I, I, that's why I love that quote, because he mentions how powerful business can be in terms of fostering creativity ingenuity, but there is not a predetermined path. People shouldn't have to suffer so we can get cheap prices for clothes. I focus on clothing because it's such a great example that ties together so many of the themes and economic principles and connections that we discuss on this show. And there's been a huge change in the global garment industry over the past 20 years. 30 years ago, 95% of clothes were made in the U.S. that were consumed in the U.S. Today, it's 3%. And the volume of clothes that we buy has just increased dramatically. In the U.S., we go through 80 billion pieces of clothing per year. That's a 400% increase from 20 years ago. The prices of clothes have been deflationary. The cost has gone down on an inflation-adjusted basis every year. And part of it is it's the outsourcing of all the manufacturing, but it's also the fact that the cost of those clothes have been borne by others, not the ultimate consumer that pays for them. And what happens to 80 billion pieces of clothes that we go through? Well, 82 pounds, each person in the U.S. throws away 82 pounds of textile waste each year per person. That's 11 million tons of textile waste. Most of it's 
not biodegradable. It sits in the landfill for 200 years. Well, you might think, well, I give mine to, to a thrift store. But only 10% of clothes donated to thrift stores actually get sold. Much of it gets dumped in developing countries, such as Haiti. And, and there's all these free clothes. They, they, they come in these huge wrapped bundles. And that has decimated the local garment industry of some of these countries, such as Haiti. Why do we go through so many clothes? Well, one, the clothes are cheap, both in terms of price but also quality. They just don't last very long. Forty years ago, you could buy a shirt and it would last for years and years. I know because I own 50-year-old shirts that I've bought used, and they're just better quality. What changed? In 1902, one of the first modern advertising agencies was founded by Ernest Elmo Calkins. His agency was called Calkins and Holdens. And he worked, and it was one of the first modern ones because of their focus on graphic design. He ran the agency for almost 30 years when the Great Depression hit. And, and there was a lot of consternation and discussion on how should the global economy, different countries, get out of the Great Depression. And he wrote an article in the magazine. It was, it was, it was in Printers, Inc. And I couldn't actually get, unfortunately, I couldn't find a copy of it. So this, this quote, I'll link to a, a different blog where I found the quote. But he wrote an article, it was called, it was printed, Printer's Inc. was printed May 22nd, 1930. So in the midst of the Great Depression, the, the title of the article is Consumptionism. And he says, consumption engineering must see to it that we use up the kind of goods we now merely use. Consumption engineering does not stop until we can consume all that we can make. Now, there's, the, there's two columns. We have the things that we use and the things that we use up. And what he was saying, in order to get the economy to grow, and what, what do we mean by the economy to grow? We're talking about increase in output. If we're going to increase the output in an economy then we need somebody to buy that output. And that output can be bought by households, can be bought by businesses, it can be bought by government, and it can be bought by foreign households and businesses if those goods and services are exported. His view was the reason many consumers weren't buying things is because they already owned them and they were using them. And we needed to get to where those things were used up. And he, he described some of the terms used in the article were artificial obsolescence and this idea of consumption engineering. That's exactly what has happened to clothing. Before clothing was used for many years, now it can be used up in a less than a year. There's a parody commercial on Saturday Night Live I'll link to in the show notes, and or you would have got it in the Insider's Guide. Again, that number is 44222. Just text the word 
Insider, I-N-S-I-D-E-R, and you'll get that, 44222. And I'm not going to say that every 30 Every every few minutes, believe me, I'm just just practicing because I know some people have have used the these textings to to build up or have people join their email list and have given the wrong number. So I figure if I say the number a few times this episode, I'll remember it. But there's a parody on Saturday Night Live of a Joseph Bank suit commercial where essentially the suits are so cheap that they're being used by the the family as paper towels and it 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 was funny it was funny now nothing i used to i used to buy many many years ago just a bank suits so nothing against just a banks but it it is a great illustration of how clothing has become so cheap and something that we use up so we can use it as paper towels because it's so inexpensive the title of this episode is The True Cost and What It Takes to Be Retired. And I've gone 20 minutes. I have not spoken about retirement yet. I'm going to do so now. My definition of retirement is very broad. Retirement is the freedom to pursue those activities that we find most rewarding and bring us happiness. One of the themes on this show is to live like you're already retired, to create a lifestyle where you're spending less than your income every year and you could sustain an activity, be it work or leisure, indefinitely because you're living within your means. Now, your income comes from investing and it comes from work, which is your financial capital that creates your investment income, your human capital creates your work income. I discussed this in episode 88, Are You a Stock or a Bond? And each year, Laprell and I, we do an annual budget. And we, we've been talking about it and we've been looking at it. And, and the reality is we spent too much on clothes last year, including yours truly. Most of my spending on clothes was for used clothes. But I spent way too much money on clothes. And as we've gone through our budget, we want to live like we're already retired and want to reduce our spending so that it is less than our income. The primary way to do that is to move items from the used up column into the used column. Can we buy things that last longer and use them longer before getting something else? Because much of what ends up being used up isn't because it falls apart, it's because we get bored with it. We don't like it anymore. We want something different. And I'd rather have the freedom of being retired and having more things in the used column than the used up column and perhaps to own less and value experiences over things. Many years ago, I knew a Mayan couple in the Yucatan that seemed incredibly happy. They were in their 60s. They lived in a oval one-room house. The walls of the house were made of vertical sticks and it was covered with clay that had been painted white on both the interior and the exterior. The roof had a steep pitch and was laid with thatch. There was no windows in the house, just a front and back door. Just one main piece of furniture. It was a handmade armoire and that's where the couple kept their clothes and their valuable. There were a few chairs, a table, and two hammocks hanging on the wall that were kept that they would unfurl and stretch across the room for sleeping. 
And the only other large object in the room was a wooden frame with a partially woven hammock. Behind the house, there were two outbuildings. There was a small kitchen and an outhouse. Now, this couple stood out to me from all the families that I'd met in Yucatan because they kept their house and yard in perfect order. Even their clothes were spotless. She wore these brilliant white dresses. They're called epiles, and they're, 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 they have embroidered flowers on it, traditional Mayan dress in Yucatan. He wore gray pants and a white Guayabara shirt. He usually kept it unbuttoned unless visitors came like us. They earned their living weaving hammocks, and I suspect they were incredibly poor. But in my mind, they seemed happy. Maybe they weren't happy. Maybe I was naive in assuming they were happy. You know, I don't remember if they had children or grandchildren. Maybe they were incredibly lonely. But when I walked into the house and I just saw how orderly it was, how clean it was, even though they didn't have very much, it in some way inspired me to realize that I could live on less. And I, I at the time, you know, I was 19 or 20. But it occurred to me that it is possible to own very little, but if it's high quality and you keep it in order and you focus on experiences and you're living below your income, you're spending less than your income, then you could be happy. I ordered a custom hammock from this couple. They called it a grandote because it was so large because I was pretty tall. And it took them about a month to work on it. It's a beautiful green color. I used it to sleep in in Mexico for a few years. And I've carried it with me for almost 30 years now. And it reminds me of them. And hopefully one of these days I'll get it hung up out at our farm. It's important to recognize the true cost of things. What is the monetary cost? What is the cost borne by others to get us whatever price we're paying? And what is the cost in terms of the life we gave up, our time, in order to buy that thing? This year, as a family, we're going to buy less clothes. We've made a game out of it. We're not going to try to buy any clothes unless they're used, and in my case, I'm not going to try to buy anything or very, very little, so that we can reduce our overall spending, live below our income, and maintain a, a life of retirement. I'm in my fourth year of being retired. Yes, I work, but I work in an area that I love and I appreciate y- you listening to me uh, on this podcast for your participation uh, of, of the hundreds of you that are on members of the Money for the Rest of Us Hub where we're building a community and we're using tools that are on the Hub to create target asset allocations and portfolios to sustain us as we prepare for retirement and live in retirement. You can get more information on the Money for the Rest of Us Hub at moneyfortherestofushub.com. Everything I've shared with you in this episode has been for general education only. I've not considered your specific risk profile. I've not provided any type of investment advice, just general education on money, investing in the economy. Have a great week.